how many of you have ever heard of the Gilgamesh epic? Okay, come on, Bartlett, Blackberry Creek, DeKalb, Gilgamesh epic, raise your hand if you've, you've heard of it. It's an ancient Babylonian myth about a worldwide flood. And there are notable similarities between the Gilgamesh epic and the biblical account of Noah and the flood that we find in the opening book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And and this has led scholars over the years to argue about which of the two accounts influenced the other. Okay, now liberal scholars, they say, well, the Gilgamesh epic was the original story, and when Moses wrote the book of Genesis, the story of Noah and, and the flood, he borrowed from this ancient Babylonian myth. In other words, the the Bible is based on a myth, which makes the Bible story a myth. Conservative scholars push back and they say, no, 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 the Genesis story, that is the true account of what happened, and the Gilgamesh epic is nothing but a, a twisted mythical version of the actual historical event. And I tend to believe that second position, I think that's where the evidence points. But what I find particularly interesting about a comparison of the Gilgamesh epic and the biblical account of Noah and the flood are not the similarities, but the differences. For example, in the Gilgamesh epic, the hero of the story pilots a boat that is in the shape of a giant cube, this ginormous cube that could never really float in real life. I mean, it would topple over and it would sink. Noah's Ark, on the other hand, Uh, according to modern-day shipbuilders, was structurally sound. It was seaworthy. Another big difference. It it took the folks in the Gilgamesh epic seven days to build their ginormous boat. Seven days. And, uh, you know, this is before there was a Home Depot to run out to and get power tools and supplies and everything else. Uh, Noah took 120 years to construct the ark, an ark one and a half football fields in length. That takes a lot of time to you know, saw the lumber and everything else. Another big difference, in the Gilgamesh epic, the world is flooded in about a week. That is a lot of rain in seven days' time. In, in the Bible story, how long does it rain? Call it out. Forty days and forty nights before the earth is buried under water. The biggest difference of all, however, between these two accounts is in their view of God. In the Gilgamesh epic, the fickle Babylonian gods, the reason that they bring on the flood, the reason they're attempting to destroy humanity is because people are, listen, too noisy. That's it. The Babylonian gods, they're sick and tired of the racket. They don't want to listen to you know humans having a good time anymore, so they're going to wipe them out. How how different, what a contrast with the God of the Bible, the God of the Genesis account. And as we look at the story today, that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on what it tells us about who God is. So if you brought a Bible, I want you to turn with me to the book of of Genesis. This is the third installment in a five-part series we're calling In the Beginning. Uh, In the beginning, we're looking at the first dozen or so chapters of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, so you shouldn't have any time, uh, any trouble finding it. And we're going to note four insights, four truths about God. So get your outline out and fill it in as we go. Here's the first truth. Jot this down. What we learn from the flood story in Scripture is is that God is a sin-seeing God. He is a sin-seeing God. Now, go to Genesis chapter 6. Let me read a few verses to you, beginning at verse 5. 
the Lord saw, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of his thoughts, the thoughts of his heart, was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Now drop down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Now, if you've got your own Bible, just circle the word saw. It pops up in verse 5, pops up again in verse 12. Circle the phrase God's sight, verse 11. Because you know, the point I'm trying to underscore here is that God sees us. Particularly, God sees our sin. And it's naive for us to assume that he doesn't. You know, sometimes we behave like the little boy I saw at the store not too long ago. Sue and I were out clothes shopping. She was actually shopping. I was along for the ride, looking desperately for some way to amuse myself. And here, here was this little boy, and he's with his mom, and he was bored as well. So he thrusts himself into the middle of a rack of dresses, and his legs are hanging out the bottom, and then he peeks between a couple of the dresses and calls out loud enough for everybody in the store to hear, Mommy, try to find me. And, of course, his mom plays along, you know, says, Oh, where is he? I can't see you. You know, it's so cute when you watch it happen. It's not so cute when grown people think that God somehow can't see them. God can't see their sin. You know, maybe it's because we, we suppose that God has other things to focus on, bigger things. Yeah, you got the civil war in Sudan, you got drought, famine, that kind of, you know, he's not looking at my sins. Or, or maybe it's because we suppose that our sins are small, small potatoes compared to other people's sins. Yeah, like the guy in the cubicle next to us at work who's cheating on his wife. Now, God sees that. But me? Or, or maybe it's because we suppose that God is really a good old boy who, when it comes to most sins, he kind of shrugs his, his shoulders. If, if it were up to God, Pete Rose would be in the Hall of Fame today, right? Gambling. We make a huge mistake, friends, when we think that God is oblivious to our sins. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 12 remind us that God sees, God sees every trace of wickedness in our lives. The, the writer of Hebrews puts it more ominously when he writes, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God is a sin-seen God. And what's more, the sin that God sees grieves him. Look again at the Genesis account, verse 6 of chapter 6, and circle the word grieved. God was grieved. You might want to circle too the phrase, his heart was filled with pain. This reminds me of something the Apostle Paul wrote in his New Testament epistle of Ephesians. You get to Ephesians 4, and Paul is giving us a list of behaviors to avoid, warning us, don't do this. Okay, Don't let your anger burn out of control. Don't let your mouth get you in trouble, Paul says. Don't hold grudges against people. Forgive them. Don't do this. Don't do, do that. And in the middle of these prohibitions, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 30 of Ephesians, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. 
In other words, you put your trust in Christ, the Spirit of God comes to live on the inside. Now, every time you sin, he sees it all and it grieves him. It grieves him. Go back to Genesis 6. There are two kinds of sin in particular that are mentioned here. Now, please understand, God sees, he grieves over all sins, but there are two kinds of sin especially noted in this passage for the pain that they bring to God's heart. One of the two categories of sin that's plainly stated in verse 11, look at verse 11, is violence. You see that? Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Okay, God saw it all and was full of violence. Any of that going on in our culture today? Violence? You know, I have to admit uh, to being just a, a wee bit cynical when, when, when the, the president treats violence in the wake of something like Sandy Hook as if it's just a matter of gun control. Now, I think gun control is an important issue, but I think it's the tip of the iceberg. You know, why aren't we talking about what promotes the violence? Why aren't we talking about the movies? Why aren't we talking about the video games that's jacking us up on violence? In fact, why, why are we choosing Sylvester Stallone to be a spokesman? He came out as a spokesman for new gun control laws. The guy whose last movie was called, what? Bullet to the Head? Really? See, the fact of the matter is we love our violence. We entertain ourselves with violence. And what is violence producing in our lives and in our culture today? Road rage, abusive parenting, and you know, brawls at sporting events, profanity-laced arguments. You know, am, I, am I the only one who's noticing how the amount of profanity in conversation today is, is on the uptick? Tragic news stories like the Sandy Hook one, but man, there's so many others. Violence. It's time we recognize that God hates gratuitous violence. If you want chapter and verse for this, just jot down Psalm chapter 11, verse 5. Look it up when you get home. Now, the second category of sin that raises God's ire in Genesis chapter 6 is sexual immorality. I want you to look with me now at the opening verses of this chapter. And this, by the way, uh, is a passage that Bible scholars say is one of the most difficult in all of the Old Testament to interpret. So we're going to read it, and then we're going to do our best to interpret it. All right? So Genesis 6, verses 1 to 3. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born, born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he's mortal, and his days will be 120 years. Now stop there, and, and we're going to look at first just the last phrase there, man's days will be 120 years. Please understand that God is not saying that at this point in time I'm going to reduce a human lifespan to 120 years. Now, what, what God is saying is that 120 years from now, I'm going to remove man from the planet. His days are going to be over. You say, well, why would God do something that drastic? Well, because of what's going on in verses 1 and 2. We've got to make sense of verses 1 and 2. And here's where the difficulty comes. 
For centuries, scholars have debated who is Moses, who, who's summing it up here, who's he talking about when he refers to the sons of God who are seeking wives for themselves or going after women from the daughters of men? Who are these two groups? There are three basic interpretations out there. And if you're thinking, well, why even look at it? If biblical scholars have come up with three different interpretations, how do I know which the right one is? And the answer is, doesn't matter. Because all three point to the same thing. All three interpretations paint a picture of sexual immorality. The kind of sexual immorality that's rampant in our culture today. The kind of sexual immorality, don't miss this, that pushes God's hot button. So that he says, that's it for humanity. They're gone. Now, interpretation one goes like this. Okay, The sons of God in these two verses were godly people and the daughters of men were not. The the basis for this interpretation is the context of Genesis chapter 6. Now, let me ask you a question. This is not a trick question. What comes just before Genesis 6 in your Bible? Oh, you are a smart group. Genesis chapter 5. Now, what happens in Genesis chapter 5? Well, we get a description of one of Adam and Eve's sons, a a guy by the name of Seth. And Seth leads a godly life, and as a result, his Descendants are godly. They're God-honoring, God-worshiping, God-following. That's Genesis 5. However, what comes just before Genesis 5? Genesis 4. Now you're all with me, okay? You know, even you, you DeKalb folks picked that one up. Oh, am I going to get in trouble for that? Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we read about a different son of Adam and Eve named Cain. What was Cain notorious for? Killing Abel, his brother, Cain was a baddie. And as a result, his descendants followed suit. They weren't God followers. They they weren't God worshipers. You say, what does this have to do with Genesis 6 verses 1 and 2? Well, some Bible scholars speculate that the sons of God being spoken here are descendants of Seth, godly descendants. And the, the daughters of men are the ungodly descendants of Cain. In other words, what really grieves God is when people who profess to be his followers become sexually partnered with people who are not. When descendants of Seth, as it were, are now hooking up with descendants of Cain. God wants our most intimate relationships, our partnerships, to be centered on him. The same thing is true not only of our partnerships, but also of our our sexual practices. You know, it grieves God when his followers adopt the same sexual practices of people who have no regard for God, no regard for God's word. Listen, friends, it grieves God when descendants of Seth, so to speak, behave like descendants of Cain. So God's word says, for example... That a sexual relationship is to be reserved for the marriage bed, for a marriage commitment. So it grieves God when people who say they're God followers, Christ followers, are sleeping with their boyfriend, sleeping with their girlfriend. See, God, God's word says it would be better for you to pluck out your eye and throw it away, a little hyperbole here, than to stare lustfully at something. And so it grieves God when those who say, well, I'm a God follower, 
Go and stare at a movie where naked bodies are engaging in sexual acts. And don't think you can do that without lusting. If you can, you need to see a counselor, okay? God's Word says that by definition, a marriage is between a husband and his wife, so it grieves God. Please hear me. It grieves God when people who say they're his followers support a different definition of marriage. You know, if you're a follower of Christ... You need to love gay people like you need to love everybody else. But you don't have to to agree with the definition of marriage that's been touted today. God gets to define marriage, nobody else. And it breaks God's heart, friends. When, When we claim to be godly like Seth's descendants, but we go on justifying ungodly relationships, ungodly sexual practices like those of Cain and his descendants. That's interpretation number one for Genesis 6, 1 and 2. You get that? Good. Here's interpretation number two, second possibility. Some scholars say that the sons of God were people with power who sexually exploited innocent daughters of men. Now, you need to understand that in Old Testament times, political rulers were sometimes referred to as sons of God. In other words, they were the ones who governed the earth as God's representatives. Unfortunately, many of these leaders used their exalted position to get whatever they wanted in life, including harems of beautiful women. Now, go back to Genesis 6, verse 2. Let me reread it to you, and you'll see this interpretation here. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and so they married any of them they chose. But God wasn't happy with that abuse of power. God is never happy with people who sexually exploit others. What are some examples of this in our culture today? What about when a guy pushes a girl to go too far on a date? What about a a husband who's demanding instead of tender in the bedroom? What about the watching of pornography that exploits women? What about when a, a boss or a doctor, a teacher, a pastor, anybody with authority hits on somebody they're supposed to be caring for? Yeah, I'll bet you could come up with other examples of sexual exploitation going on all around us. That's interpretation number two. Interpretation number three is much like interpretation number two, but we just add one word, okay? So the sons of God were people with demonic power who sexually exploited innocent daughters of men. What's the word that I added? Demonic. This is another way that the phrase sons of God sometimes is used in Scripture. Sometimes it's used to refer to angels or you could say fallen angels or demons. And so some Bible scholars speculate what what Moses is talking, what he's describing here in Genesis 6, 1 and 2 are, are people who are wickedly jacked up. I mean, they're demonically controlled. And so in, the, in this wicked power, they go out and they exploit others sexually. And if this sounds like an over-the-top interpretation to you, like maybe something out of a horror movie, demonically inspired people forcing themselves on others. Let me say, when I look at our culture, there are times when I wonder how it could possibly get any more evil than it is. I don't have, I don't have trouble 
believing the demonic interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 and 2. When I consider the fact that there are millions of women and children today who are sex slaves around the world, sex trafficked in our own country, in our own city. You know, I mentioned pornography. Come on, pornography is a multi-billion dollar dollar industry today, friends. Which not only exploits the women that it, it uses in its production, but it exploits men who become addicted to it. It exploits the men whose lives, whose character, whose marriages are destroyed by it. Sounds demonic to me. You know, I, I look at just our average movies. Somebody recently sent me a link to a movie review site. It's not a Christian site. It's just a wholesome, secular movie review site. And I decided to test the waters by looking at the reviews of all 30 or so movies that are currently playing in the theaters. And I got done, and it was like, oh, I want a shower after that. Just, oh, you feel filthy. The amount of sexual immorality in just our, our average movies. What about our books? What do you say about a culture whose number one runaway bestseller for week after week after week is this uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, a story of sexual bondage, sexual domination? I say it's sick. I say it sure looks demonic to me. In fact, I'll be honest with you. As, as I wrestle with sexual temptation in my life these days, like most of us do, more and more I find myself saying, oh God, this stuff is strong. <laughs> I need your help. Or I'm toast. And, and some of you may be in bondage to that kind of stuff today. And o- only God can set you free from it. God sees all. Not only in our society at large, but also in our individual lives. He is a sin-seeing God. And the sin that he sees in your life, the sin that he sees in my life, grieves him. It fills his heart with pain. By the way, the word, the word pain there in verse 6 of Genesis 6, it, it doesn't just mean it hurts God's feelings. The word pain there means indignant rage in the original Hebrew. How many of you know it's not a good idea to persist in behavior that fills God's heart with indignant rage? That leads us to the second truth we learn from this story about God. He's a people punishing God, number two. Every once in a while, somebody will pay me a compliment about my preaching and use a line that makes me somewhat uncomfortable. They'll say something like this, I'm sure glad, Pastor Jim, you're not one of those fire and brimstone preachers. Now, I know what they're saying, and on the one hand, I, you know, I appreciate the fact that you understand that my, my sermons are, generally speaking, upbeat. In fact, if you hang in with me on this one, it gets upbeat, okay? Because I, I want to encourage people with the love of God and challenge them with the adventure of following Christ. But on the other hand, I don't ever want to mistakenly leave you with the impression that that God doesn't have a fire and brimstone side to his character. Because fire and brimstone is exactly what God used to destroy sinful people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read about it yourself 
in Genesis chapter 19. And here in Genesis chapter 6, God punishes people for their sins. Not, not with fire and brimstone, but with water. I mean, lots of water. A flood. Let me read it to you. First, the warning, and then what actually happened. The warning, you'll find it in verse 7. God speaks to Noah. Chapter 6, verse 7. The Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth. Men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, birds of the air, for I'm grieved that I've made them. Drop down to verse 13. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And then God carries through on his threat. In chapter 7, you'll read about the flood itself. Drop down to verse 20. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air were wiped from the earth only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Now, now, for some of us, this picture of a people punishing God is rather startling. Because we've all always assumed that God is so loving, God is so forgiving, that punishing people for their sin couldn't possibly be part of his character. But it is. It is. In fact, Moses, who wrote this account, he wrote another book of the Old Testament, the next book, the book of Exodus. And in Exodus 34, he recounts a conversation that he had with God one day. Then the Lord came down in the cloud, and he stood there with Moses, and he proclaimed his name, the Lord. Now, God is about to tell Moses what his name, Lord, means. God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, I like that, Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, that's good. Maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, check, check, check. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. What? He does not leave the guilty unpunished. God punishes people for their sin. Now, you can refuse to believe that. You can say, well, my God doesn't punish people. And in that case, you're right. Your God doesn't. But your God is a figment of your imagination, not the real God who reveals himself in the pages of his holy word. So you either get your knowledge about God by speculation or by revelation. You can speculate. You can come up with your own theory as to what he's like, or you could believe in his revelation, what God says about Himself. And what God says about himself is, I am a people punishing God. Quite frankly, I think that the biggest reason people refuse to believe that God punishes people for their sin is that they don't always see that happening consistently in this life, right? Take yourself, for example. Have you ever done something that you absolutely knew was wrong as you were doing it? And as you were doing it, you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'm going to get zapped for this. You ever thought that in the back of your mind? Like you're sure, well, I'm going to have fun doing this, but afterwards I'm going to pay. I mean, something bad is going to happen. And then nothing bad happens. So what do you conclude? What do you conclude? Call it out. 
care. God doesn't punish sin. He doesn't really care. So you probably do the same thing again and again and, and again. Now, it's cool when we're the culprit and God doesn't punish. We don't like it as much when God doesn't punish people who sin against us. Then we want God to throw the book at them. You see what she did to me? Smack her, God. Yeah. And when it, when it doesn't happen, we say, well, maybe God doesn't punish sin. See, we just don't see it happening consistently in this life. How do you explain that? One theologian years and, and years ago tried to explain it. I like his explanation. I think it was Augustine. I'm not sure, but whenever you're not sure, say Augustine, and nobody else knows. And, uh, and I don't have a, an exact quote, so if you try to Google this, you may never find it. But this is my best recollection. This is my paraphrase of what Augustine said. Ah, <laughs> oh. Jim's lame paraphrase of a theologian he can't remember captures the spirit of it. Okay. God, now listen, God does just enough punishing in this world to let us know that he's a just God, but not enough punishing to keep us from expecting more justice in the world to come. Now, do you follow that? That's good stuff. You know, sometimes God does punish sin in this life, just to remind us he's a just God. But the bottom line is that whether or not it happens in the here and now, we can count on the fact that punishment will eventually happen. The writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 9, verse verse 27, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That's, That's a sobering thought, and my hope is that that sobering thought will drive you to the next truth about God. Truth number three. We pick this up from the story, he is a grace-giving God. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 6 as we continue on in the Noah story. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Now there are two things I want you to notice about Noah in these verses, 8 and 9. First, his faith, and then his obedience. So let's start with faith. Look at verse 8. You say, wait a second, I don't see any mention of faith here. Well, it's there. It's just beneath the surface in verse 8. Verse 8 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word favor there can also be translated from the original Hebrew as grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is a gift. Grace is something we, we don't deserve. Grace is something we couldn't possibly earn. So how does a person get grace from God? Well, the Bible is absolutely clear on this score. The way to get grace from God is through faith. Perhaps the classic text in this regard is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, God's grace, your faith, this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. How did Noah find favor? How did he find grace with God? Through faith. Now you think about it for a moment and you'll recognize his faith. You know, one one day God shows up and he says, Noah, I'm going to wipe out all of humanity with a flood but I want you to build an ark and get on board because you're going to be saved. And Noah believed God. (laughs) 
Noah had faith that God was going to do exactly what he said he would do. And I want to tell you that that kind of faith is no small deal. Think about it. Noah had the faith to imagine a flood that's going to wipe out humanity. Noah had the faith to spend 100 years constructing a boat 450 feet long in the middle of a desert. Noah had the faith to withstand day after day after day the taunts, the ridicule of unbelieving neighbors. Hey, Noah, party tonight. Oh, that's right. You can't come to a party because you're building a boat. Noah had the faith to go out and collect two of every kind of animal with which to repopulate the earth after the flood. I mean, Noah's faith overcame a lot of obstacles, didn't it? Of course, Noah's faith would have to overcome even more obstacles if God asked Noah to build an ark today. Maybe you've heard the updated version of the Noah story. God asks Noah to build an ark. He goes away and he comes back about a year later to see what kind of progress Noah is making and nothing's been done. And God says, Noah, what's the problem here? Noah replies, well, the, the blueprints you gave me didn't meet the city's code. And the Forest Service required tree cutting permits. And I was sued by an animal rights group when I tried to gather the animals. The EPA asked for an environmental impact statement regarding the flood. The IRS seized all my assets, claiming I was trying to avoid paying taxes by leaving the country. And the Equal Opportunity Commission said I wasn't hiring enough Babylonians. (laughs) Well, the real Noah had faith. And his faith found favor with God. His faith found grace with God. And I want to tell you, friend, today that you could still find grace from God through faith. It's how, it's, how it works. Put, putting your faith in God means faith that God will punish sin. And you believe it so strongly that you repent of your own sin and you seek his forgiveness. F- faith that God has provided an ark for you to get on so as to avoid the flood of his judgment. And the ark is Jesus, who died on the cross to pay for your sins. So that if you put your faith in him, if you'll get on the ark, so to speak, you you could be saved. Have you ever put your faith in Christ? Have you ever received God's grace through faith? Now, now, faith isn't all that we learn about Noah in Genesis 6. He was also a man of obedience. Look at the description of Noah in verse 9. We're told he was righteous, he was blameless, he walked with God. Wow, that's obedience. And as the story progresses, which, by the way, I hope you'll go home and read it for yourself sometime because we're just skimming over the highlights takes four chapters for Moses to tell the story of Noah, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. I hope as you read through it, you'll see that one of the lines that repeats again and again and again is that Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Say it with me. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Whatever God asked Noah to do, Noah did. And friends, that's the evidence that a person has genuine faith. If we say that we have faith, but we're not eager to do whatever God tells us to do, then our faith is counterfeit. You know, genuine faith always leads to obedience. 
I'm not suggesting perfect obedience, but the trajectory of a person's life who's a follower of Jesus, who's surrendered to Christ, whose faith is in him, the general trajectory will be one of obedience. And if you don't see that in your life today, if you don't see patterns of obedience to God and his holy word, then don't just try harder to be an obedient person. Go back and revisit your faith decision because that's where the train got off the tracks. Did you really ask God to deliver you from your sins? Did you really? Did did you really surrender your life to Christ and ask him to become your savior, your king? Do you really today take God's word seriously so, so that you can walk in obedience to it? You know, we're saved by faith. Have you put your faith in Christ genuinely? Because if if you have, it's going to lead to a life of obedience. You get it? Good. One last truth about God. He's a covenant-keeping God. He is a covenant-keeping God. There's a, a real happy ending to the Noah story you're probably familiar with. When, when Noah and his family and this zoo full of animals, when they step off the ark onto dry ground after the flood recedes, God makes a covenant with them. Now, now covenants were commonplace in the ancient Middle East. Okay? Kings frequently made covenants with their people. What is a covenant? A covenant is a relational treaty. And in the treaty, the king would say, I promise to do this, this, and this for my people. And in response, I expect my people to be loyal and to serve me. So the king would promise protection. He would promise provision. This was a a covenant. Throughout the scripture, you read that God makes covenants and keeps covenants with his people. Now, in the specific case of Noah, the covenant includes... God's promise that he will never again wipe out humanity because of a flood, okay, or through a flood. Now, I want you to go over to Genesis chapter 9. This is the end of the story. Pick it up at verse 12. Note how many times the word covenant pops up in this passage. You're going to see not only covenant mentioned, but the sign of the covenant, okay, the evidence that God puts in the sky that I'm going to keep my word. What is that evidence? What's the sign? A rainbow. This is the rainbow passage, friends. Genesis 9, beginning to verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds. It'll be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. God makes a covenant with Noah. He puts a rainbow in the sky as a sign of the covenant. Why a rainbow? It's interesting to read what Bible scholars have to say about this. One explanation I really like goes like this. You know, a a, a rainbow is in the image of a weapon. It's an archer's bow. Okay, and where, what direction is the bow pointed? Call it out. Up. Who is the bow pointed at? God. So God makes this 
covenant puts a sign of the covenant in the sky, a bow pointed at himself, as if to say, I will keep this covenant on the pain of death. You say, well, wait a second, God can't die, so exactly. God's saying, just as I can't die, I can't break my promise. I never will. I I will keep my promise. Now, this covenant that God made with Noah, it's only one example in the Bible of these unbreakable commitments that God makes with people, but the biggest, the best covenant of all, the mother of all covenants, is the covenant that God makes with people through Jesus Christ. In that covenant, what does King God promise us? He promises his people forgiveness for their sins. He promises his people new life. He promises his people an eternal home in his presence. And what is the sign of the covenant? It's not a rainbow. What is the sign whereby God says, I mean it, I'll keep my word? What's the sign? It's it's the cross, and more specifically, it's the blood of Christ. Think about it, friends. We're about to celebrate communion. When you hold that cup of juice in your hand that represents the blood of Christ, this is the sign of the covenant. God's saying, I will forgive you. You are mine. You'll live with me eternally. I'm giving you this sign as a reminder. Wow. What does God expect from you in return in this covenant? He expects your faith. And he expects a faith that leads to obedience. Have you ever put your faith in Christ? Now, God is not asking you for faith to build an ark, but God is asking you for faith to get on the ark. Jesus is the ark. How do you avoid the coming flood of God's punishment? You get on the ark, you get in Jesus who bore the punishment on your behalf at the cross. Have you ever, have you ever put your faith in Jesus, surrendered to Jesus? Have you ever gotten on the ark? And if you have, if you're a person who's trusted Christ, I've got two closing questions I'd like to ask you before we head into communion. The first question is this. Are you currently forsaking the kinds of sin for which God destroyed the earth in Noah's day? Are you done with things like violence, sexual immorality? Don't don't grieve God. Don't take God lightly. The Apostle Peter reminds us that one day Jesus Christ will return to judge the earth. And his judgment, Peter says, will be just as cataclysmic as the flood, only this time it'll be fire instead of water. And so Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 14, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, okay, since you know what's coming, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. See, we, we know what, what's coming. We know what sin pushes God's hot button. The truth of the matter is some of us are dabbling in, some of us are captive to sin like that today. And communion is a good time to come clean. Communion is a good time to say, God, with your help, I'm done with this. Help me. The other question I want to ask you is this. If you're a Christ follower, who are you telling about Jesus? Noah is referred to in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2, verse 5, as a preacher of righteousness. 
In other words, for 120 years, while he's hammering away at the ark, he's telling everybody within the sound of his voice to get right with God. In fact, he's saying, hey, by the way, you could get on the ark with me. Join me. So, so you've got friends, you've got family members who are not yet on the ark of Jesus. Will you tell them this week? Will you bring Jesus into the conversation at school, at work, in your neighborhood, at the health club, in your carpool? You know, find some way to work God into the conversation. Yeah, you invite him to come to church with you. You invite him to join your community group. I don't know if you're interested in the Bible, but we got people in our group who've never cracked the binding on one before. So, you know, it's for novices as well as uh, veterans. You want to join us? You know, this is the week of Second Saturday. Have you ever thought about using that evangelistically? There are some people who would never darken the door of a church, but they'd come with you to serve the poor for three hours on a Saturday morning. Just may be a step in the direction of Jesus. We're going to close and move into communion, and I'd like to turn things over right now to our regional campuses, but ask all of us at all four campuses right now just to bow our heads in prayer. Would you pray with me? If you've never gotten on the ark called Christ, friend, now is the time to do it. You don't wait till the rain of God's judgment begins to fall. And so I would say, repent of your sins. Come to him. Say, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I want my life to be in yours. I want to surrender completely to you as the Savior, the new king of my life. If you're a Christ follower, are there sins that need to be forsaken right now? You're saying, okay, God, I've treated you too much like you're not a sin-seeing God, like you don't notice this stuff in my life. But now I'm keenly aware of it, and I want to turn from it with your help. And right now, call to your mind, if you're a follower of Jesus, somebody you know who's not yet on the ark of Christ, and say, God, would you give me the courage this week to speak up about Jesus, to bring Jesus up in conversation with these friends of mine? God, as we turn to communion now and we hold in our hand the cup of juice, I pray that it will be that much more meaningful to us now that we know it's the sign of your covenant with us. It's your guarantee. It's your promise that you're going to forgive us and give us eternal life. We pray in your name. Amen.